Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Variety, celebrating more than 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. It's it's the show. That's the premise. Really. <laughs> um, it's just how we go about it. It's the, uh, the interesting thing. You know, I think uh, audiences... Um, appetite for the for the the, the, the drama and the, the cunning and the, all these different sort of games that they play within the family hasn't hasn't waned yet so you know it's it's almost not about succession in the end it's about how a family tries to to deal with each other and to deal with their you know inability to be vulnerable with each other the show is called Succession, but after three seasons, it's still a bit unclear how or if Logan Roy will ever give up control on the hit HBO drama. And for star Sarah Snook, who plays Shiv on the series, that's the whole point of the show's journey. I'm Michael Schneider, and on this bonus episode of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talk to Sarah Snook about Succession as we head toward the season three finale and what might be next. Also in this all-succession episode, we talk to the show's composer, Emmy winner Nicholas Bertel, who is also behind the music for the new film Don't Look Up. It's next on this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast. Stay close. On HBO's Succession, Shiv Roy, as played by Sarah Snook, has experienced a bit of a roller coaster this season as she struggled to remain in her father's inner circle. While media baron Logan Roy has declared war on his son Kendall, who is also on the outs with his siblings, Shiv suddenly finds herself upstaged by her younger brother, Roman. But then came the season's penultimate episode on Sunday, when Roman's creepy obsession with company CEO Jerry is made public, and suddenly Shiv has a new tool at her disposal to get back in. In the episode, Shiv exchanges monumental moments with Jerry, as well as her husband, Tom, whom she doesn't love but does love, and her absentee mother. It's quite an insight into who Shiv is and how she became the way she is. You weren't a spotty mother. You were just an absence. But I'm fine. I moved back to bloody New York so I could be near you, and I never fucking saw you. Mom, it's okay. It's fine. You let Dad take us, and it was probably best. Gave him custody so you could keep your shares and I could protect your interests. You chose... I'll have the carbonara and daddy, please. I didn't choose anything. You tend to get what you want anyway. And you don't? I don't think I've ever won a single battle in my whole life. Hmm. I was 10, Mom. I was a fucking kid. You were 13. And you knew how to twist the knife. You knew then and you know now. And I might cry. Oh, yeah? Where's the onion? You were quite a piece of work. You were my onion. You are my onion. Yeah, well, you're my fucking onion. With the season three finale of Succession airing this Sunday, I spoke with Snook about Shiv's tumultuous times, the relationships between the siblings, as well as the real-life actors who portray the Roys, and what she hopes might happen next. We began by discussing what it was like to get back to succession after the pandemic delayed production for nearly a year. Yeah, I mean, what a gift to have some time off. You know, like, I think it was the first time maybe in my career that I wasn't stressed about not doing anything, wasn't stressed about like having time off because I knew that succession would begin again at some point, um, which was like such a, you know, as an actor, and, you know, anybody in creative arts sort of industries know that like having work ahead of time and know that you can like actually take the foot off the accelerator for a moment is is always a good feeling uh so yeah it, it was it was great and also like what a benefit to have have that time and, and space to sort of think and breathe and do other sort of dreaming to then like 
really have the full power to come back into season three uh, for yeah. what for what we were demanded of doing during the season, which was you know a huge amount of fun, but a lot of hard work during COVID too. Yeah. No, I, I bet, I bet, and it must have been such a just a different experience this time. I mean, beyond obviously the COVID protocols, uh, what did it feel like on set this season? How different did it feel compared to the first two seasons? Where you know now that you are full blown phenomenon, that you sort of know that you know people are paying attention to everything that's yeah. happening with these characters. Did it feel different? Did you guys talk about it on set? What was sort of that yeah. that vibe? I mean, absolutely. Um, to, to be honest, and I spoke about this with, with some of the cast members and, and Jesse as well, like my fear coming out of season two, which was so well received, um, to shoot season three was that um, there would be this kind of sense of awareness, but in a weird way, because of the pandemic, because of the strictures we had with COVID and, and all these sort of regulations in place, we had an obstacle. And so we had something to to overcome together. And I think that really helped us as a team to to, to band closer together and bind uh, bind us in, in a way um, to, to create something that we're proud of in the way that we were for season one and season two when no one really was necessarily, we weren't really necessarily aware that we were being watched, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and now you are obviously, yeah. and uh, season four, who knows? Uh, we'll ex exactly. <laughs> well, as we're talking, by the way, where we're the the penultimate episode of of season three has aired, so we're still sort of waiting to see what what happens yeah. next. But this was a wow, quite a lot. Um, yeah. But let's let's start with Shiv. Let's talk about your character because she's gone through so many ups and downs this season she starts in one place she seems to be in another place then she seems to be uh sort of out of sorts with her family then she finds a way back in this most recent episode she's ready to capitalize on her brother's big mistake um how would you kind of describe this this really topsy-turvy world that that shiv has experienced over the course of this season yeah, I think she's um she's having to be okay with volatility. And that's something that like she's used to in sort of a career world of politics and that kind of thing. And coming back into the family business, I think she knew that that's what was going to happen. But having it feel so disorienting, disorienting, I think is has been like the fun part to play as an actor. So it's very much like uh being within your father's sort of praise and love and admiration and then suddenly on the outside is you know <laughs> like hot and cold is you know very two different shades um yeah but uh i, I really liked that episode eight i loved doing because you also get to see more of what shiv's kind of inner life i think is with um the scene with caroline and her mum. you know that, that it was so much fun to do let's talk about that that scene with tom and that line that I, I, I may not love you, but I do love you. I mean, yeah, it's like, <laughs> who is this woman who's so incapable of vulnerability? There's this kind of, um, she's probably been able to get away with a lot of things through charm and wealth and entitlement, but there's so, you know, there's only so far you can push someone, I guess, as well. And, and, you know what what a setting as well for that conversation to happen in Bagno Vignone walking around this like ancient pool which sort of looked like it was like some sort of gestational pool of something anyway so you know talking about fertility and babies and future and and in, so, in such a casual kind of way like talking about it and like well that's gonna if we freeze that's gonna be two two olympics you know until you're ready to, to <laughs> such a tom way of explain yeah, yeah yeah figuring that out yeah. And these huge conversations that that uh, I love the way that Mark directs. You know, th these huge conversations happen in such a such a casual and and um, almost non-essential kind of way. But in the setting, it's so grand as well. It's like, yeah, I, I, and Shiv, you know, I love you, but I'm yeah, I may not love you, but I do love you. Is like, which is the difference? What does she even know? Does she even sort of see how painful it is to say to somebody? I don't know. It's, yeah. 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 But you also see sort of, you know, she, she's so broken and, and you learn a little bit more about her, her mother sort of basically giving her up at age 10. And, totally. And, and not and, seeing really that like that, the being 10 or even 13, it doesn't actually matter what age you were. You were still the child in the parent child relationship. And, 
and there's a perspective that a child will have that the sort of parent needs to to protect and look after and make sure that they're feeling uh worthy worthy you know and 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 loved um and so yeah i i that scene was one of my favorites to do because we haven't seen a lot of um the maternal sort of influence on shiv in a direct way but yeah. um, that scene was great to explore yeah yeah and it's one of the reasons you know i i'm one of those people i never fast forward over the opening credits because every week i find it just when, when you look at those clips of the young yeah. roy family and being a you know sort of abandoned by their father and, and it sort of just it sets up every episode and, and it, it sort of puts you in that right mindset of oh that's that's right this is why these people are the way they are here it is all in a 30 second intro with this amazing nick patel song so yeah and and seeing seeing like the third season version of that and the um the little kids ska uh, skiing, uh, which mm -hmm. I mean I don't know whether Kieran thinks this or Jeremy, but I, I feel like it's me. <laughs> they yeah. might feel like it's them, but like this high achieving little I think they're three years old and they're just like zipping down the you know and obviously very good ski gear as well. Like that they would have gone on these ski holidays and been such high achieving children that have hit a ceiling in the eyes of their father. And yeah. because, you know, and, and also been sort of in, in different ways messed up by their parents throughout that childhood. It's great looking back through it and seeing how they sort of, at what point was it that they turned, that they had to, that they were, you know, irrevocably changed. They had to fight for their father's love or their mother's love or, you know, weren't just like innocent little children. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were good at skiing once, you know. So let's talk about Shiv and Jerry, that scene where you know it, it, that that dance between shiv and jerry where you know both have their agendas both you know they're 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 both sort of eyeing each other and you know what's 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 the motive here what's going on i mean i that that scene was was just as like powerful as as the scenes that Shiv had with her mom and also with tom talk a little bit about that and and sort of that that moment for shiv as she's sort of like sizing up what her next move is, how she could take advantage of this supreme screw up that her brother just did. It's like, it's great because it's also, uh, it's, it's the kind of um, conflicting you, you want you, what, what Shiv is saying is not wrong. And it's the appropriate thing to say. It's the same thing we saw in, in season two and episode nine, where she's like, what she's saying is not wrong. But the fact of saying it in the first place, the way in which it's said, and the sort of subtext that you get from why she's saying it and what she probably wants out of the result of saying it is that's where the drama for me is like to, to be able to play as an actor like Jerry, of course, knows exactly what she was doing. But there's this sort of protection of whoever's going to say it first is the one who loses. So we have to kind of protect this idea of we're on the same page. And if you succumb to, you know, having somebody send you dick pics, then this is bad for you. It's a bad look for you. You don't want to have a bad look for you. You're in a, you know, I'm letting you know you're in a precarious position all under this very nice smile and sheen of like, I'm just protecting you and you know, <laughs> feminists and we're in this together, you know? So. Yeah. And that's where you never really know, you know, how much, you know, Shiv obviously is sort of the most progressive of the siblings. And, you know, it, she she does have some concerns with the news channel and with with what Raystar Royko does. But at the same time, she's ambitious and she also knows what works. And, and so you're forever wondering, you know, how much of this is just, you know, does, does she really have a moral fiber versus how much of this is just you know she's her father's daughter yeah. uh you know we see it at the republican convention where she's 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 the only one who's not really a fan of the fascist but she'll put up with him because it's you know it's still the company yeah it's well that's the thing is like I, the closer you get to the company the closer you know the more embroiled in the family you get it seems the more your uh, moral identity gets eroded and I think part of her leaving the family in the beginning or before, you know, before we really pick up in season one where she was during during that season is part of that is like establishing an identity outside of the family and and having uh, something that she could be uh, contrary to to her father and, you know, being embroiled and getting 
deeper into the machinations of the business and the family and all of that means that her identity is being eroded again. And so it's like, how much do you stand strong with that? Uh, and how much do you sort of fight for power? And sometimes they're in conflict and that's, yeah. So what do you make of the relationship between the siblings this, this season, especially like where Shiv actually stands with, with Kendall, uh, given all, just all the terrible things that they say to each other. Uh, but yet they, they still, you know, they, they, they still are kind of looking out for each other, but you know, it, things got really nasty this year. It did. Yeah. And there's like, there's such a, um, interesting, uh, difference of relationship, I think in, in, in with each of the siblings, you know, uh, Roman and Shiv have, have a, have an ability to, to barbie each other, but then also somehow still remain friends or remain sort of okay with being family members. Um, even though there's like a real simmering, certainly episode eight and it um, comes to a bit of a head, but you know, episode eight, there's a real simmering tension between Roman and Shiv for sure, which is like, you know, he's the, I love that line, the dirty little pixie with a megaphone, which you know, it just, yeah. I feel like, explains Roman to a T. It's like, don't give him, don't make him king. We can't let the dirty little pixie be king. Um, yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> well, and, and she really feels on the outs after he sort of, you know, suddenly Roman has his moment. All these different yeah. uh, you know, siblings have their moment, and, and Shiv kind of feels on the outs for a good chunk of, of the season. And they take it maybe... so, so much to heart as well. They take it so much to heart where like if one of them does the other one dirty, it's like, oh God. And then, then they're over it. But there's, yeah. there's a drama, there's like a performance to it, I think in the family. Um, Yeah. It's, and, and so, so many insane things that happen in, in episode eight, uh, of course, speaking of Kendall, we, we sort of leave on this note now of what, what, I mean, He's 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 fallen pretty far, and I know you can't give any spoilers, but what what do you make now of of Kendall and and his role in the family, and yeah, maybe I mean, what might happen to him? Yeah, it, it, it's a fascinating journey. I think from the beginning of this season to the end of the season, I think you know, flying high, this this uh, <laughs> van, hoping to be the vanguard of change thinking that they're, you know, the knight in shining armor to, to just being uh, confronted by their, their fatal flaw of, of not, not, not being able to follow through, not being able to like be there, be the, be the killer that his dad sort of hoped he might've been or, or needs him to be or wants him to be. Um, and so, it, you know, as, as, as siblings, I think from the outside, it's like, he's kind of set himself up on, on a different path, on a different team. And we have to double down for our own safety, uh, I guess with dad. And then, um, yeah. How do we, how do we bridge that gap between, um, you're being the antagonist and, uh, you're being the candles being the antagonist and, and being the, the one, uh, against the sort of the team Logan, I guess. And also the care that you have for your brother who's going through a really difficult, you know, obviously tumultuous, Sort of moment in his life that um yeah i think that's it, it, it sets up some really interesting conflicts for sure yeah i know a lot of people before the season began i don't know if you noticed hbo put out a bunch of different posters putting the characters on different sides of the table so all season there was sort of this how where is everyone going to end up um but that's yeah. sort of you know the, the the show is called succession i mean how long do you think this this dance can continue and 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 uh you know, just when we think Logan is out, he's back in. Just when we think one sibling is in control, they're not. Uh, I guess that is the yeah. show. It's it's the show. That's the premise. Really. <laughs> um, and it's just how we go about it. It's the uh, the interesting thing. You know, I think uh, audiences' um, appetite for the for the, the 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 drama and the the cunning and the, all these different sort of games that they play within the family hasn't hasn't waned yet. So, you know, it's it's almost not about succession in the end. It's about how a family tries to to deal with each other and to deal with their you know inability to be vulnerable with each other. Um, what what is that like as you all sort of get to know your characters a little bit more, especially with the siblings? What what is sort of your relationship on set like? Uh, the 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 three of you especially, like, how do you sort of uh, do you do you rehearse much? Is there much sort of interaction off off camera? What's what sort of like uh, you know as you've now been working together for for several years? Yeah. What, what's that relationship like? 
Yeah, I mean, it is very like a sibling dynamic, I think, as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, sibling kind of behavior between Kieran and I. You know, he's he's brilliant, and you know, there's a lot of uh, joking and jibes and and things like that. And then it's fun. You know, you you get onto set and you're like, you can you know you can throw the ball one way, and Kieran will run and catch it, um, and that it'll be thrown back. And there's a game. You know, there's a real play, sense of play, and that's yeah, one of my favorite things. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what about some of the other characters or some of the other actors on the show? Yeah, I mean, Alan, Alan and I, again, there's like a sibling sort of relationship with like an older father figure kind of type, which, um, you know, he calls me his baby sister, which I love. And that's, you know, I feel like that would have been a real thing that, that Connor and Shiv would have had as well. And and then there's Kendall and Jeremy, you know, there's like that that whole sort of um, dynamic between the four of us. I think there's, um, there's, there's moments of reflection, certainly on the on the screen. Yeah. 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 Have you ever talked to Alan about uh, Ferris Bueller? Has uh, that ever come up? Not um, not in specifically, but I spoke about a film that changed his life and um, that he, you know, has had uh, been recognized from for the rest of his life, sort of in 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 the sort of um, ambiguous amb ambiguous sort of nature of that. Yes, but not <laughs> right. like just curious because I think the, no. I think if if I worked with Alan, that's the only thing I would ask him is just tell me more about Cameron on Ferris Bueller. Yeah, but, totally. Uh, I mean, it's hard not to, you know. Um, and and uh, I. I there was just a big profile about Jeremy the other day. And so I'm, I'm fascinated. He's, he's such a interesting just person. What, what is he like? What, what, uh, I don't know if you had a chance to read this profile, but what. I did. Yeah. What, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, Jeremy's great. He's like a, he's a very singular, unique person and, and actor. And, um, and he works in a different way than, than other people or, uh, you know, but we all work in different ways. We all have a different process. So, you know, it's about being, uh, my favorite thing I think about about the filmmaking process and you get this in theater but in film I feel like because there's so many time constraints there's so much um you know there's like locations there's uh weather there's all these things and variables that could come at you from any angle that um the thing that I love about filmmaking is that you have to work as a team to 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 fight together against those things we all have a common enemy of of the weather or the time or the you know there's all these things that, that could um, bring a film set to its knees. And and my favorite thing, I think, within that is is working as a team and getting things done. And part of that is respecting each other's ways of doing things. And whether that's like props or costume or different acting processes or what have you, you know, it all comes down to teamwork. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, this is pretty a pretty incredible ensemble. Uh, and uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I didn't realize that you guys had gone to Italy until I saw that episode. So that, uh, especially during the pandemic, what was that like? It was amazing. I mean, <laughs> it's Italy. We, yeah. um, you know, we had from like November to June, I think, in, in somewhat lockdown in New York. I think, you know, we maybe had gone out to dinner once or twice during that whole time because, you know, you want to protect, again, like you want to protect the team you want to protect the, the 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 film set you want to make sure that everyone's families are okay when they go home you want to make sure that you're not bringing COVID to set so we sort of had a very uh monastic version of shooting i guess um but then when we went to italy uh, irony of like more monks there but you know like italy was great it was like finally having a summer it was finally getting outside it was somewhat returned to normal it was six weeks of hanging out with each other and, and eating pasta and and being in sunshine and then working on these amazing scripts and being in these extraordinary villas again like all the spaces and locations we get to go to are you know so luxurious and like amazing that um you know you couldn't help but be happy in that sort yeah. of circumstance yeah, no, it it looked incredible. Um, yeah, overall this season, there's also it feels like there's more comedy, uh, or or maybe we're just kind of getting to know these characters more. So even like the little things that they do, kind of just you you can't help but chuckle. Uh, yeah. But I, I do feel like as everyone sort of really gets comfortable in their own skin and and comfortable in really knowing who these characters are, um, that there's probably more. Uh, ad-libbing perhaps than there used to be or or just I, I know you guys frequently get multiple takes and you're able to do yeah. more with that but is there a sense of like everyone's like really like you know sort of playing more like having more fun like like trying more things out yeah absolutely I mean we, we get such a um sort of wide breadth of being able to like 
invent. And and a lot of the time, those inventions don't necessarily make the the final cut. But what it does is like give you layers of relationship that you've you've had that experience with that actor or character in that moment you've made that joke you've made them laugh or you've made some sort of like look and then it all filters down it's like it's a cumulative sort of brew in a way um and i i I love being able to sort of know that the camera is on once it's rolling even if you're on the deep background have an opinion about something do something be a real person don't sort of like sit back and wait for your moment for the camera to swing to you it's it's so much more fun that way, you know. Yeah. Like you're always then playing the game. It's great. Yeah. No. It's it and it comes off on screen. Uh, so so looking ahead, um, I know Shiv is probably a little ambivalent about Tom not going to jail. So now she's got to put up with him for for longer. But nonetheless, what what do you think? What what would you like to? Where would you like to see that relationship go? Where do you think Shiv may sort of like head in, in season four now that she kind of is back in the driver's seat again? I don't know. I to, to be honest, I just watched episode nine. I got a um, little taste of what's to come, Ooh. and I really like. I cannot wait. I, I had a little cry watching episode nine because I was like, oh, these poor kids and these characters and there was something really sort of nostalgic as well about leaving season three and going like, right, well, that's done. That's gone. That's, that's, I guess over. And I don't know what's going to happen next, but I can't wait to see what, like, where do they take them? Where, what do they do to, to, to Shiv and to Tom and to Kendall and to Roman and, and Connor? Like there's so many different avenues set up. I, um, I, I don't envy the writer's room, like where they have to sort of develop this, but also I'd love to be a fly on the wall to see, you know, all the different versions of something that could come out of this. Yeah. That's Sarah Snook, star of HBO's Succession, which finishes its season three run this Sunday. After the break, more Succession talk as we chat with composer Nicholas Bertel. From Los Angeles, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we're back. It's the Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. Though Nicholas Patel is an Oscar-nominated composer who works regularly with Adam McKay and Barry Jenkins, he acknowledges the succession song is a whole other level. On the film side, Brittell is the composer of McKay's latest film, Don't Look Up, a satirical comedy about a comet on path to destroy the Earth and how two low-level astronomers, played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, can't seem to get anyone to care. In addition to scoring the film, Brittell is responsible for one of the film's funniest moments where pop stars, played by Ariana Grande and Kid Cudi, sing Just Look Up, urging people to trust their own eyes. Bertel co-wrote the song with Grande, Cuddy, and Tara Stinson, and he details the collaboration that went into penning a hilarious tune that is also genuinely catchy. In an interview with Variety's Janelle Riley, Bertel also discusses how Natalie Portman helped launch his career, the upcoming film of Carmen, and some of his favorite Succession parody lyrics. And yes, they begin, of course, by discussing how Succession has become his calling card. Not, I mean, honestly, it's... Uh... It's been such a blast to work on the show. I feel so lucky to to be a part of it, frankly. Like it's, um, you know, none of those, I'm fully aware that, you know, none of these things happen in a vacuum. Everything is like, there's a multiplicity of things that happen. I mean, the writing on the show is unbelievable. The acting is amazing. You know, it's like all of these things have to come together for any one of us to be able to, you know, to, to, to do our thing. But, um, but it is, it is a special uh, experience to work on it. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I love the whole team. It's really wonderful. Jesse is incredible. I mean, you know, every week I get to, you know, we talk to each other and we, we have, you know, just direct dialogue about what are we doing in these episodes and what are we trying? And they're totally creatively supportive and HBO, they're the whole, I mean, every, basically they let me, you know, just kind of like, you know, write all this music <laughs> for the show. And, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been very special. 
What do you think it is about that theme song that has hit such a chord with people? It's a great question. I don't, you know, I mean, in a way, I mean, it, there are some elements that link with the tonality of things that I do with Adam, where it's a, it's not one thing, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? There's something, all of that, all the projects that I've worked on with Adam, uh, and I did, you know, I initially did the pilot with Adam for Succession. You know, that's where we, you know, it was with Adam and Jesse. I really helped sort of figure out the tone of things early on. And I, I think it's this intersection of different tones at once that might be something about it. There's a sort of, um, uh, you know, it, it's like, it's like almost too big for itself in certain ways. It's like, you know, I purposely mix it wrong because like the bass yeah. is much too big. Like, I, like this is not how the bass is like purposely too big and the drums are too big and the strings are, you know, a little out of tune and the piano's out of tune. Everything's a little bit like what? Question mark. <laughs> but it's, but it's also so confident in it's like kind of what it's saying. It's so overt that I think in a way, maybe it, there's a, maybe there's a resonance with these crazy times we're living in. It's not, you know, I mean, everything in the world is somehow related to everything else, you know, everything's connected. So maybe there is this something about the, maybe it taps into something crazy in the world today and that vibrates with that somehow, you know, uh, that, that's my best guess, I don't know, but it's definitely a multiplicity of things, you know, it's, it's like the attitude pianos and the strings and the bass and the 808, the drums, you know, so there's a, there's a lot going on. <laughs> I just uh, uh, love the the people who will put lyrics to it. Oh, there's <laughs> incredible create, creative. Uh, now I can't uh, unhear the lyrics when I hear the song. I start yeah. hearing, all the rich yeah. white folk are going to argue. That's an amazing rendition. That one. I love, I love that. That's, that's one of the greatest that has been re of, of the remixes. <laughs> well, the good news is now people might start asking about the person who wrote the song with Ariana Grande for Don't Look Up, because Just Look Up is such an earworm. And I mean that in the best way. And I know it, I know it was a group effort. It was yes. the two of yes. you and Kid Cudi. It was, so it was, uh, I, and I can talk uh, talk about how we did it. It was, it was me, it was Ariana, it was Kid Cudi and Tara Stinson. And Tara four, Stinson, okay. Tara, the she four do... of us, Tara's amazing. So basically um, the quick the quick backstory on it is I, uh, I'd read, uh, there's a, the, one of the more recent drafts of the script before we shot the film. Uh, there's this big concert that takes place in the film. And I don't want to, you know, spoil anything because this is a movie that, you know, has there's a lot going on. So I don't want to give anything away. But, you know, there's this concert in the film and um, talk to Adam about it. And he's like, basically, you know, it needs to be a love song, uh, you know, that Riley Bina, Ariana Grande's character is singing and, you know, uh, and DJ Cello, who, who is going to be, you know, it's Kid Cudi, you know, is going to be, and we, it needs to be a love song, but it also needs to be a song that, somehow perfectly is able to morph from a love song into a song about we're all going to die <laughs> without breaking the song. You know, the song has to still work. And um, so, you know, just like a lot of our, you know, the creative challenges I get from Adam, you know, I'm like, okay, let's figure that out. <laughs> How do we do that? And, and um, I honestly, it was, you know, it doesn't always happen this way, but I read the script and kind of immediately went to the piano and wrote the song, like musically, just late, it just happened. I, there was something about the, the idea of just look up, you know, and, and the feeling of just look up at the sky and, and the upward, the melody literally goes, just look up, you know, it yeah. moves up like that. So that was a very conscious thing on my part. And, um, and then the chords, I wanted it to be a power ballad. You know, I wanted it to be this kind of song where, uh, you know, Ariana could really, you really, you know, sing out. And, um, and so after I wrote those, those chords and that, and that chorus, um, Adam was really into, he was like, he was like, okay, let's move forward with this. And I had the honor and privilege of getting to work with Ariana. So I went to her, you know, her studio and um, we, I played her, I played it for her on the piano there. And about 30 seconds later, she just goes, can I go in the booth and try some stuff out? Wow. And I said, yeah, sure, absolutely, we're right here. And she literally immediately laid down the entire vocal top line right there. Like, it's like the song went from my demo, me just playing the chords here, to this song in, you know, um, like three minutes later. And it was so incredible. It was one of the most amazing things I've, I've seen. And um, I took that to Adam and he was just blown away. And it was at that point that I reached out to Tara because 
we had to figure the lyrics out. There were still no lyrics. You know, she had done, Ariana, you know, was experimenting with some ideas for the second half of the song and she, those definitely were on the demo. But, um, but Tara was the person who figured out how we could create uh, lyrically a totally real love song and have it turn into this other, you know, element at the end. And, and that was remarkable. I mean, she did, she figured it out right away. It was, it was, she's an amazing songwriter. And, um, and then at that point, uh, Kid Cudi heard the song and he, and there was this spot that I'd written in the beat for him, you know, for DJ Cello. And when he heard it, he had a very strong view that he, of what he wanted to do. You know, I think thinking of himself both in the role of DJ Cello, but also as Cuddy, he wanted his own artistry, his own sound to be in there. And so he wrote his lyrics there and he recorded his melody and we went, we did that at his studio. So, and all of that happened before we even filmed it. Cause then we had to, you know, I, I always, I, I always think it's fascinating how many moving parts and how much work goes into these on-camera performances. Cause if they work, no one should have any sense of, it should feel totally natural. Like, oh, I'm watching a concert, but the amount of things that happen to do this is really incalculable. And so then we filmed it, they performed it. Uh, and then in post, we had to figure out how does that scene actually work in the movie? And then I actually recorded when we were doing the score, I actually recorded a whole set of orchestral strings that take that come in on the final chorus. So that's actually an orchestra in London that is in the song too. And so yeah, there's a lot of, lot of stuff went into it. You went all over the world for this one song. This one song, I worked on that song for about a year. Wow, you're kidding. Yeah, no, really from, from the first, I wrote the, I wrote my demo, I believe it was probably last September, 2020. And I, and I just finished all the mastering and album mix wow. a couple of weeks ago. That's amazing. And you know, it's such a tricky feat too, because you have to believe it's like a popular pop song that people would sing along to on the radio, but it's also, you know, telling a story in the lyrics and also just a really good song. <laughs> well, thank you. So, I mean, that was, that was the dream, you know, that was what we were, that's what we were hoping for that it could, I think ultimately, and I feel this with every, with everything, you know, anytime you're, especially with music, anytime you're doing music for a film, whether it's score or a song, I think it has to, Number one, it has to work in the context of the film mm -hmm. or the series or whatever it might be. It has to work inside. But I think it also always has to have its own integrity so that it can exist outside in a way. I think both of those things have to be true. You know, I think there's an element of like, if it can stand on its own, it will only help even more in the project. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. You know, I'm, I'm actually curious, uh, how did you get into composing? Was that, did you always want to compose for film and TV? I know like your first job was Natalie Portman brought you on to work on her film. So like, is she responsible for this career or was that always the plan? Well, it's interesting. That was my, my first, my first project that I feel anyone saw was definitely with Natalie. It was there, she directed a short film and I actually was in the short. As I, an actor? I, I'm the cocktail pianist in, in her short film playing and I'm playing a piece of music that I wrote. And actually it's Lauren Bacall and Ben Gazzara are in the scene with me. And I'm just, you know, in a restaurant in New York playing the piano. So that was my first, that was the, that was the first, uh, you know, it was a short film. Um, but, but the first project I ever, my first composing actually for film was in college. And uh, it was all of our, you know, I had a lot of friends who were, uh, wanted to be directors and wanted to be producers and actors. And I, uh, my, actually it was my dear friend, Nick Lavelle, who was the first person ever asked me to score a movie who he, he tragically passed away a few years ago. Um, but he was the, he was really the first person to say, Hey, do you want to try this out? He was making a feature film when we were in college, uh, for like $10,000, he filmed this, you know, feature film. And, um, and the movie, the movie never really came out, but we, we worked on it for three years. And it was the first sort of, you know, the first time in my life where I was in the room with a director and we didn't know what we were doing, but that was kind of the best part of it because we loved movies. So I grew up loving movies and I grew up loving film music. And, you know, you sit there and when you're, when you're put in front of a picture that has no music and you say to yourself, well, what do I, what do I do right now? Like, uh, you know, it's, and then we, I would just say, well, what about this, you know, or what about this? And, and I think it was those early moments of joy where you sort of, you see what happens when music mm -hmm. interacts with picture. It's just a magical mystery that happens that, and there, and we were both sort of intoxicated by how wonderful that was. And uh, so I started, those were my first real, it was, so it was early, that was like 2000, 
So that was 2001, 2001, 2002 that I, so it was about 20 years ago, I started for the first yeah. time doing it, but I've, you know, I, I, I started playing the piano when I was five. And I think I've, I've told you it was, it was, I saw Chariots of Fire and I was so obsessed with that theme that I went to the piano and tried to figure it out. And I asked my mom for piano lessons. So, so to some extent, film music was my first inspiration for, for playing music. That's so cool. Yeah. And, uh, you're, and I know I've told you this before, but I understand virtually nothing about music. I'm just a fan yeah. of music and musicals. Yeah. So if yeah. I use like really off terms, please forgive me. Terms are <laughs> terms are, 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 are only occasionally helpful. I actually think sometimes musical terms are, are counterproductive. You know, like I think oftentimes, I even find oftentimes when you're recording with an orchestra, you know, if you say, you know, you need something to be more like, you know, allegro or whatever, or you need it to, you know, you can use all the Italian terminology you want, but like ultimately I think orchestras also appreciate just saying, this needs to be really intense, okay? <laughs> Here's what's happening, you know? Like, I think just being, straightforward and honest with the language is usually the best. How much do people try to communicate with you in sounds? Like, you know, I need a bong here or like, you know, <laughs> they, they actually try to, I guess, onomatopoeia um, the, yeah. the sound they're looking for. That's interesting. You know, I think, I, I mean, it definitely can happen. I mean, there's definitely times where you're kind of like, we need this thing to do like a big boom or something, you know, or, I mean, that's, that's totally possible. I think a lot of the time, I, and I also kind of encourage like talking about like uh, just using words, like just saying, you know, because because I feel at words, words really do have so many gradations and nuances and, and different words really imply different emotions. You know, there's very different wavelengths of emotion that different types of music feel like, at least to me, you know, I think we're all composers, we're all just sort of, we all have sort of like, I think a mental mapping maybe of like sounds and feelings and we're kind of working with our own mental you know geography of how we map those things together if that makes sense and i think like you know if a, if a director says to me you know like using words that i was used with adam if a director says to me high anxiety or he says to me you know bombastic or he says says to me profound you know those are totally different worlds and you know i'm sort of like that's what i think i like words like that you know or or emotions are very helpful you know like saying an emotional word because because there's so many types of emotion and so many you know because a lot of this is trying to figure out i'm trying i'm hoping to write music that the director is hope is wants for their project you know i, I it's it's a little bit of telepathy i think <laughs> Do you know when you just jibe with someone instantly, like with Adam, I think Big Short was the first thing you did together. Yeah. Did you, did you know that this was going to be like a lifelong partnership? Same thing with Barry Jenkins. You know, you've, you've done his movies. Do you, do you feel lucky. at the moment you meet? It was very lucky. I, what can I say? It was really like, uh, it was, it was really special. I, I, like, I remember the first phone call I had with Adam uh, where I, you know, I was a fan of his from before I met him, I, my wife and I quote Anchorman to each other 80 times a day, you know what I mean? Like, we're, you know, like I'll be like, I quoted, you know, I'm doing a recording session in London and I'll be like, okay, everyone, this is a big one. <laughs> you know, I'll say, like, I'm constantly like, you know, I quote Anchorman 300 times a day. But, um, but I remember, yeah, when I first met Adam, I mean, we just had, he's so, he's so brilliant. And, and he's so funny, but he's so brilliant. And we had such a remarkable conversation and he asked such good questions and he's so, encouraging and honestly I think that and, and with Barry too I mean I remember the first time we met we had you know a multi-hour conversation it was supposed to be a quick coffee and it turned into a three-hour conversation about life and movies and we opened up a couple bottles of wine you know what I mean so it was like I think you you do you do feel things you know and I, I think when it's kismet I don't know how else to say it like mm -hmm. where you're all I think where you're all excited to hear each other's thoughts you know I think the best at least in, in my experience, you know, thus far, I think the best directors are the ones who they 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 want every every department head, they want to bring their best ideas and say, here am I doesn't mean anyone's right, you know, it's never about who's right, who's right. It's never that. It's always like, what do you, you know, what do you think? Like Barry will always say to me, show me. He'll say, show me, Dr. Bertel. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not a doctor, but <laughs> but you know, he'll say, show me, you know, and then and 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 Adam's the same thing. Like Adam's like, you know, he Adam always jokes that he'll say something, he'll be like, this is crazy. And look, 
you have to understand, I don't know what I'm talking about, but what if, you know? And, and it's always, he's being too humble because honestly, he really does know what he's talking about. They all know what they want to feel. And it's about, but they're so cool about it and they're so open about it and they're so supportive and they both create environments where people want to bring everything to them, you know? So how does it work? Like in the case of Don't Look Up, did you read the script first? Did he kind of give you an idea, you know, yeah. and, 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 you know, did, did you think of it as like the challenge of scoring sort of the end of the world? Oh my, it was very, I mean, he wrote it before COVID. You I know, know that's crazy. I read it, I read it quite a few years ago. And, um, and I remember first reading it and, and I love taking notes as I read and thinking of things and I jot down ideas for myself, but, um, but it was interesting. I mean, it was, uh, I wrote a piece of music called the overture to logic and knowledge. That was the first piece of music that I wrote. And it was, it was the idea was I was trying to summon that feeling of, you know, the kind of, kind of the reverence for logic and science and knowledge and you know maybe what humankind can aspire towards as far as like figuring things out like if we face problems we'll figure that you know what i mean like that kind of like upward potential etc you know and and so i was writing that with the idea of like well what's the opposite of that feeling <laughs> what if we're not figuring things out and what if we drop the ball you know and so but the first thing was uh, you start there you know you start with this almost platonic ideal and actually adam asked if i would write something for him to play on set for the actors and so he, i wrote that and i and he played it on set for the actors in the um early on in the telescope sequence at the beginning of the movie yeah, so so he played that for everybody, and um, and then you know it evolved from there. I mean, obviously the movie itself is this breakneck comedy that also deals with you know the potential profound tragic uh, uh, scale of our uh, of our issues, and um, I think it had to. The big challenge was balancing all of those forces, you know, and and morphing from you know music awe filled wonder to absurdist big band within a minute you know so I mean I wrote a lot of you know there's a lot of huge big band jazzy music that I wrote you know for the main title sequence that has toy pianos and celestas and banjos and bass saxophones and all these different things and and um you know it's there's a lot of different I guess I would say there's a lot of different moves that the score is doing constantly you know uh to sort of ballet in a ballet with what's happening in the story you know uh, I am so curious, and because you 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 do so much at once, and just this year alone, you had Underground Railroad, Cruella. Now you've got Don't Look Up. I think are you also scoring Adam's Lakers series? Uh, I am working on the Lakers series okay. right now. Yep. Do you work on one thing at a time, or can you like bounce back and forth to projects? Like you know, you spend the morning on something, and then in the afternoon you get to something else. It's, it's been a lot. I will say I just, I, you know, I just finished doing succession season three. So that was a lot as well, you know, but it's, um, I, I think there are limits, you know, in the sense of, I think it somehow, I think in my, in the deep recesses of my mind, I think I pine away for just doing one thing at a time, but I also think that I've never really been that way. And I've always done a few things at once. And Looking back, I think there's a, I think there may actually be a benefit to doing more than one thing at once. Again, there are totally limits. I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm probably, you know, overwhelming myself a little bit sometimes. But, but the, I think when you have more than one thing at once, they prov those things themselves provide a nice balance, if that makes sense. You know, where when you're just doing one thing at a time, you're sort of sometimes so in it, and it's nice to have a, a refresher. You know, where you're like, I'm doing this. Oh, I now have to do this, and they each balance each other. You know, and you're also doing Carmen, I believe, or did you do that already? That no, I'm working on that right now. That is so exciting to me. Just everything about it, the cast and the filmmaker. Um, the fascinating you... film. It's, I'm totally. Yeah, we are. I mean, what I can say, but yeah, we're reimagining uh, the opera. Um, in a, it's a total reimagining, um, and uh, with new new songs. And actually, I'm working with Tara Stinson as well as Julieta Benegas. Uh, on songs uh, that are in the film. And then um, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a different re, re, reimagining of Carmen. Yeah. So, so um, since other composers say that people always come up to them and say, Hey, did you do the succession theme? Do people come up and do it to you? 
<laughs> I think people, people, I, I, I definitely get a lot of questions about the succession theme. I would say, yeah, I definitely, I definitely get questions about the succession theme, but it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's been that's that's been quite an experience. And honestly, just having finished, I'm, I've been living in the world of succession up until literally earlier this week. I was working on episodes, so I'm now I've now finished with the season. So <laughs> I would think one of the coolest things about that job is you get the scripts in advance. I I am you know it's funny I I read some of them, but I also I found that on a lot of things, especially with the TV series, it's helpful for me to know some of it but not all of it because then I really? get to. Be, as I go like I I don't I don't love re reading the end of the succession seasons I wait to watch what they've done and then I see it and I'm like oh wow <laughs> but then how do you write the music for it you wait till the episode is shot. I write a lot of the music or I write a lot of the music I write some music from scripts I see the early scripts that have been written and I talk to Jesse about what the scope is for the whole season and then I write music for that and then once I start getting episodes then I'm writing for every episode as it comes so it's kind of a combination of early work and then you know I score every episode so it's a lot of work every episode I feel um I, I've seen just saw the episode that I think airs next week with Kendall's birthday party which is <laughs> oh it's so it's so cringe uh, but I feel we were deprived of another L to the OG mo mo uh, moment when he didn't uh <laughs> ascend into the when he didn't ascend singing. yeah I yes. know exactly yeah exactly yeah I guess we can talk about it because this will come out in a bit yeah exactly yeah. Yeah, he doesn't ascend yeah I know we didn't we didn't you know we're we're uh we 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 save our ammo you know we we every every season has to have its right you know its right moments and that birthday party um it's such a bad birthday that we didn't, uh, yeah, we didn't write an original tune for that horrible Kendall, oh, <laughs> for Kendall's God. worst birthday ever. <laughs> I can't believe y'all made me feel bad for him again. I was finally moving away from that and then, oh. Well, just, you know, hard. Stay, just stay tuned. Great. <laughs> <laughs> That's Nicholas Bertel, composer behind Succession, Don't Look Up, and so much more. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with another all-new episode featuring an interview with Don't Look Up director Adam McKay. The Award Circuit Podcast is produced by Michael Schneider. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Oscar predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news analysis and reviews. For Jazz Tanke, Clayton Davis, and Janelle Riley, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.